are. Now it's time for me to qualify. Again, I'm Dane. I'm a compulsive overeater. And, uh, hi, Dane. Hi. Good morning. I've been absent uh, since July 10th of uh, 2000. And, I'm sorry, 2010. Four years. Um, and uh, I first learned about this program uh, through a friend who had lost a tremendous amount of weight. And at that point, I was trying all of these uh, crazy methods to lose weight. And I thought he was going to tell me about some kind of diet or device that made shakes or something, some of the things I had tried. And he told me that uh, he had joined OA. And my heart sank because at the time I had, uh, I guess I had about 12 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew what that meant. I knew what I was up against. I knew what I would have to do. And uh, at that point in my life, I was basically a compulsive overeater hiding out in AA and taking credit for the amount of time that uh, I had drank or used drugs and all the service work I was doing in that program, but really not addressing uh, a problem that had been with me uh, a lot longer than, uh, than the uh, other problems I was facing in that program. And I, I'm sorry. Um, and so I came back to, uh, I was traveling, uh, met this friend of mine who had been exposed to this program and had seen tremendous results came back to Los Angeles and told another friend of mine about it and they uh, revealed to me that they had been relapsing in and out of this program uh, for years and not, you know, I, I had no idea. And uh, I saw that same person a week later and because I had revealed this to him, he had rejoined OA and, and recommitted to the program. So I was starting to get surrounded by people that were in OA and my options were getting uh, smaller and uh, I really was reluctant to come to the program. And I went to a meeting, finally, um, that I thought would be small because I know the meetings in Los Angeles and I know the meeting places. And I picked a meeting that I thought would be very tiny and I could just sort of scope things out and decide if this was something I wanted to do. And, of course, the meeting was huge. And they, they asked if uh, anyone was new. And I just decided to take a welcome trip. And uh, thankfully for me, there was someone there that I knew um, that I always thought was very fit and very healthy. And uh, after the meeting, we talked, and he gave me his history in Overeaters Anonymous and really inspired me to do this. And I left the meeting that night, and, you know, driving home, I went into a place that I would normally eat and ordered three portions of food and ate them all and went home and didn't think anything about it. It wasn't really a relapse. It was just the way that I was living at that point. I woke up the next morning, and the welcome chip was on my nightstand, and I, you know, I realized what I had done and I realized, you know, that I had to make a choice. Am I going to continue to suffer the way I'd seen people suffer in other programs that were relapsing or am I going to commit to this? So I went to a meeting the next day, still undecided, and I heard someone speak. It was a light a candle meeting and he had a very similar story to mine. And my wife was with me as well, who at this point was like hiding like diet pamphlets in my briefcase and really like pushing me to, she had seen me gain a lot of weight and really was trying in a loving way to push me in some direction. And so when she heard this person speak, uh, she was elbowing me, you know, because she knew I needed a sponsor. So I asked him to be my sponsor and I've, I've, uh, the first thing that he had me do was read five pages a day out of the OA 12 and 12 and call him. And that forced me to go through uh, the steps with him. And what that's evolved into, he lives in Orange County. And, and by the way, you know, he's my sponsor, but he's a 
right-wing Republican NRA member. We have, we have like, nothing in common. I have to keep our conversations very focused on OA because as soon as we start going in any other direction, it turns into an argument or I, I get very quiet or he gets very quiet and it gets really uncomfortable. But he's a wonderful person. He's taught me a lot. And uh, through the process of doing the steps with him, he's learned who I am and reminds me of uh, commitments I've made and, and experiences I've had at just the right time to keep me on the path. And so by doing that, um, I've been able to stay abstinent. And my abstinence is no flour, no sugar, three meals and one snack a day. I have a couple of habits. I write down everything that I eat because um, I work and I have my own business and uh, I manage post-production for TV and film. And, you know, some days there's really nothing going on and I'm, I'm doing sort of sales calls and trying to latch on to the next project. And some days I've got more work than I can really deal with. And my eating can get very erratic. I'll get up in the morning and I'll, I'll eat a abstinent breakfast and then it can be 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I realize I haven't eaten. Or it can be 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I've eaten four times. So I find it very helpful to just write everything down and then I can look at it on my phone and check in and see where I'm at in terms of what I committed to eating that day. Um, because I still am not very good at that. It's, it's, I need that discipline. And so that tool has been really helpful to me. But what's helped the most is, uh, is the steps. And uh, that's really what I want to talk about. My background, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I think there's four parts to everyone's story. There's what it was like before I discovered the solution of overeating. You know, when I was really young, um, I was different than other people because I worried more than people did, uh, other kids my age did about things like, you know, pollution or overcrowding or any kind of bad story I heard on the news or anything I saw on television, I really took to heart and started to worry about. I was nervous. I felt like uh, uncomfortable around people in social situations. I don't know where that comes from, but when I started to overeat, it didn't bother me quite as much. So I started isolating, watching television and overeating at a very early age. And uh, I loved doing it, and it worked, and it got me through, you know, high school, and uh, it was my solution. I could get through almost anything if I knew I could go home later and overeat and, and watch television. And uh, gradually, uh, that, that stopped working, and uh, I found other substances to kind of salve the, the problems that I felt. And then that stopped working, and I found myself in, in the 12-step program. Which, which solved those problems and introduced me to this way of life, but never really addressed the overeating. Um, and, you know, what that turned into was someone who was going to meetings and being of service and compulsively overeating and hiding what I was eating. My favorite thing to do would be to work really hard all day and then go home at night and unplug my phone and order a bunch of takeout food and watch television by myself and I would avoid social situations I would lie about you know where I was and what I was doing to just push people away and it was a very lonely existence I was getting bigger and bigger and then I started trying various diets and food delivery programs and I was the king of like on Monday I'm gonna just eat green vegetables for 30 days or all of these crazy things and you know I have a lot of willpower that I can apply for a period of time and in some areas of my life, I've been really successful applying willpower. But when it comes to food, it just at some point I cross the line and it stops working. And what was happening was I was gaining more and more weight, and I was starting to see health problems crop up. And uh, 
you know, I was surrounded by these people that had a solution, and so I decided to come to OA, got a sponsor, and started to work the steps. And in step one, I realized that, uh, you know, I had to practice some acceptance. I had to accept the fact that I couldn't exert my will over my eating problem, and that um, there was a degree of insanity and unmanageability going on. And um, it's a really bad piece of news. It's really hard to just sit with that, but I think it's necessary for me to look at that and accept that and explore that with the sponsor before I move on to step two, which is this belief that uh, this new way of life, this program that's offered in Overeaters Anonymous can restore me to sanity, can start to um, correct the way that I think and act and behave uh, by watching and listening to what other people do and by some kind of a belief in a higher power. And that is the biggest struggle for me in in the program is the God and concept of God and listening to people that have a very, and I believe a very sincere faith in a a higher power that is working in their life. Um, I don't know if it's my cynicism or my upbringing or what it is, I've always really struggled with that. And so what I use when when nothing else really seems to work is the program. I know that every Saturday morning everyone's going to be here. The majority of us have stayed abstinent all week. If we were alone and trying to do this on our own, it wouldn't work. So there's something going on here. And if I'm participating in it, I get the benefits, whether I believe in God or not. So that's sort of a bottom line belief system. Now, there have been moments in my life where I've had an overwhelming feeling of a presence of a higher power or I've seen demonstrations of a higher power but I just can't hang on to them uh, with you know a sufficient enough belief to be able to apply them Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock when I'm at work and I'm stressed out and there's a bunch of sugary food there I just it's it's not I haven't achieved that level of uh, spiritual development yet so I really rely on the program Uh, After I take and accept step two, there's step three. And uh, one of the exercises that I I learned early on is just going back and examining my life and looking at people or things or belief systems that I looked up to and admired and uh, figuring out what the principles were at work there and and writing those down and making that my higher power, a description and inventory of, of my higher power. And then reading that in the morning and acknowledging the good things that I have in my life and, and not taking credit for them. My, my gratitude list in the morning is really, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm abstinent. I'm grateful for almost 50 pounds weight loss that is that has stayed off. I'm grateful that I have friends, I have a program, and the list goes on and on. And all of this stuff is evidence to me that there's a higher power and that's the manifestation of the higher power in my life. And so in the morning I seem to be able to generate that. And, uh, and with that belief system, I go into step four, which is an inventory of really three things. It's an inventory of my resentments, uh, which are repeatedly over and over, you know, the argument in my head scenario or hurt feelings that uh, linger on longer than, than it is healthy. And I know exactly physically what a resentment feels like. I know when I have one. Um, I've examined this part of myself enough that I I can tell when I have one. It's still very difficult to get rid of them. Um, I need outside help. I need a sponsor and I need time uh, usually to get rid of these things. But it is an indication 
if I can get rid of what was done to me or what I think happened to me, and if I could get rid of the circumstances around it and get down to what I did to put myself in a position to uh, trigger this resentment, then I can start to look at my defects and start to avoid getting into those situations in future. And that's happened to me over time. Over the four plus years I've been here, I sometimes today I'm able to see myself walking right into a situation that's going to create a resentment and taking another turn, going in another direction. Even if I'm not sure or I'm afraid, um, or I may look foolish, or I may feel awkward, I take a hard turn in another direction and end up not getting that resentment and, and my life gets better. And that's where I need to pray. That's where I need to acknowledge all these good things that are going on in my life, that there's some kind of higher power. and Just give me the strength to not do what I've always done. And then also be gentle with myself when I do what I've always done, because I've, I've repeatedly fallen into the same traps in my recovery over and over. Once I get that inventory written down, um, I bracket the word fear. If fear is, is an instigator of the resentment I have, and I, I get a fear inventory down on paper. And then I do a relationship inventory, just all of the people I've been intimate with since I've written my last inventory. And then as I'm getting to the end of that process, I call my sponsor and make arrangements to sit with my sponsor and share that with him. And again, he's a right-wing Republican gun nut. He drives this big, like, red Corvette. He's He's not... He's not someone that I would normally socially interact with and it's awkward and I'm much more comfortable talking to him on the phone and I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but when I phone him at our prescribed time on Sunday night and I get voicemail, I love that. I love not having to talk to him, I'll just be honest. I, that's, that's like a joyous moment for me. Um, because most of our calls, it's not like my life is in constant turmoil. Most of our calls are just these long, awkward conversations um, because he's a compulsive overeater too. I'm sure he struggles from the same social phobias and anxieties that I do. And I know what it's like when sponsees phone me. And it's just weird. Um, and it's uncomfortable. But we do it because when I am in crisis and when I do need him, I'm, I know I'm going to call him Sunday night at 7 and I know he's going to pick up most of the time and, and we can talk about it. And it hasn't been three months since I've called him. So it's like going to the gym or something. It's just working that muscle so it's regular and familiar. So we meet in step five. I read my inventory to him. We've done three now over, over this four-year period. So he recognizes the patterns. He can point things out. But really, he's just there to keep me accountable and to listen and to learn more about how my disease is functioning in my life today. Um, I get rid of all of that written stuff and really get it down to what are my defects of character. Uh, there's an exercise at the end of step five in the big book where I go home after I've done my inventory with my sponsor. I spend an hour alone really contemplating the last few steps and make sure I haven't skipped anything, make sure that I haven't uh, not revealed something to him because I didn't want to hear the, the solution. I wasn't ready to do it, any of that sort of thing. And then I uh, move into step six and my step six is very simple today I actually used to do a very complicated step six and by doing the working step guide that we have here in OA um, this time I've been through it twice but somehow I missed this the first time this time what I learned is there's really just five defects of character that I suffer from and I write them all on an index card I read some literature in the morning I pray and meditate the way that I described at the beginning of this talk and then I just contemplate those five defects of character. 
and see where they are in my life. Am I prideful? Am I afraid? Am I angry? Am I being greedy? Am I caught up in self-pity? And I know as soon as I read that, because I've done the work in step four and because that defect is distilled from my own experience, it resonates with me. If I read self-pity and I've been, you know, in my mind wandering around in the past and thinking about some ex-girlfriend because I'm, you know, having a fight with my wife or whatever it may be, you know, it's obvious to me. I just, it's, I feel it immediately. And then I can ask for help in that moment to have it removed. And actually, just by acknowledging it, just by admitting to myself that that's going on, it goes away. As soon as I look at it, as soon as I examine it, it goes back into its dark corner. So I, for me, that's a really important moment in the morning. And, you know, the step says becoming entirely ready. So after doing this for a while, I start to see a pattern of, you know, I may not be greedy in 90% of of my uh, life, but in this particular area and taking credit for something on a project I've worked on or uh, trying to appear like I've done more than I have at work or there may be some unique area in that greed defect that I just can't do. Every time it presents itself, I know it's wrong and I step right into the hole. And I don't know what that is. I've never really been to therapy. I don't, you know... I'm not going to examine it in that direction. All that I do at that point is move into step seven, humbly ask him to remove the shortcoming. I'm humbled now. I've tried very hard to eradicate this light, this defect from my life in this particular area under the force of my own will, and I'm completely, I strike out every time. I never get any progress whatsoever. So it's clear that I need some help outside myself. I've admitted it to my sponsor. I've talked about it in meetings. I've read it, I've studied, all that's left is God. So here we go. You know, I'm back to this thing that I struggle with, whether I even believe in, and I ask for help in this area. And if I'm sincere about it, and I, I keep myself accountable by the next morning reading those defects and seeing where the relief has come, I get relief. I get, you know, there's, it, it goes away for the day. It's not permanent. I can't go to, you know, 10 meetings in a row and take a year off. It it just doesn't work. I wish I could. Honestly, I really wish I could, but it just doesn't work like that. It's a daily reprieve. But if I keep myself accountable that way, it also makes me less cynical about a higher power because I have personal examples of, of that higher power work in my life. So it doesn't matter what someone else thinks or says or whether they're religious or they're an adamant atheist and... You know, I love listening to that stuff. Like, I love listening to Christopher Hitchens, you know, very intellectually break down why there's no God. I just, I love that stuff, you know. Um, but it doesn't help me. And, you know, it's not going to solve my problems. So I need, I need a practice that is going to solve my problems. Uh, once I've spent some time working on these defects and I'm at least aware of what they are, now I can look outward at how I've treated people around me and start to mend some of those uh, fences. The first step, of course, is just writing the list in step eight. And, uh, you know, I think the important thing for me is to realize writing the list isn't making the amend. It's just getting it down on paper and being honest about it. Again, this is where a sponsor comes in handy because I review my list with my sponsor and he will point out things that I left off. Uh, He'll point out things that are on there that don't belong on there. And, you know, my sponsor and, and the way that I work with my sponsees, I don't give them specific directions. I don't tell them what to do. I just point things out and and leave it with them. And uh, I come up with a list. I'm reasonably confident works. And, you know, when I first came into this program, I thought, 
harm. What harm am I doing anyone else by overeating? And it isn't really, I, I think a lot of uh, my focus early on was on my weight and what I ate and all these kinds of things that really have less to do with it today. If I'm not taking care of myself in that area, if I overate last night and I go into work and I'm supervising you, I'm going to be very mean to you. I'm going to be bullying because I'm unhappy with myself. Um, if, if I am compulsively overeating, I'm going to be dishonest. And dishonesty triggers, you know, once I tell one lie, I have to tell another one to cover it up and it just becomes this huge thing. And then my mind is focused on getting caught in the lies I'm in and I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing. So guess what? I'm not being loving, caring, helpful to the people around me. I'm not being a good employee. I'm not being a good client. Uh, so I really started to see how my compulsive overeating was causing harm in my life. And uh, I made my amends. And the most powerful amends are face-to-face. You know, sitting down with someone and, and talking about... Is that three minutes? Perfect. So sitting down and talking about what I've done and how it's affected uh, them. But, you know, some of the powerful amends also have just been a commitment to not doing those things anymore. Uh, I only have a couple of minutes left, so I'll just skim over 10, 11, and 12. 10 is a daily practice. Um, In the big book, it talks about this being prompt. I can tell. I get a physical twinge when when I've done something wrong, when I've acted in a defect towards one of my fellow human beings or I've been dishonest or I haven't been you know, as helpful as I could be and uh, the most effective way to not have that end up on an inventory and have to go through this whole process again is to address it in the moment. So I really try and do that today. Um, what helps me is before I go to sleep at night, I just imagine all the interactions I've had with other people and what they were like and really see if there's anything there I need to fix. There usually is. In 11, I practice my prayer and meditation in the morning. Um, I go to a meditation center once a week where I sit in a group and meditate with people. That helps. And I meditate every morning. And then in step 12, I'm, I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs. So I'm doing my best to forgive myself when I wander off the path, but also really try and be the best person I can be and, and use the spiritual principles I've learned about in this program in my interactions with others and be of service. You know, I was a greeter here for a while. Uh, the secretary changed, so I'll look for something else. I always have a service position. I like to keep them very, you know, like setting up chairs, greeting, making coffee kind of commitments, unless the uh, area uh, stuff. Um, and uh, that just keeps me connected to the program and makes me feel a little more welcome and a part of because still today after years and years of being in this programs and program and others when I walk into the room I always feel like I don't belong here and I have to prove myself it's just a, I don't know when that's going to go away or if it ever will but I found that service is a great remedy I'm here to set up the chairs I'm here to say hello I have a reason to be here and then that moment passes and I feel okay thank you the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself because you're being recorded. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Um, and then I'll restate the question after you ask it so that it is recorded. And we'll go till 9.35. Does anyone have a question? So the question is, were there any periods of time where I didn't want to disappoint my sponsor so I was less than honest with them? Uh, 
I can't recall anything specific. I think that I've always been very honest with my sponsor. And I think that the reason for that isn't because I'm necessarily, honesty is not necessarily my, you know, strongest trait, but that by doing that exercise at the beginning, you know, he asked me to read five pages each day. Oops, sorry. It's my reminder to stop talking. Um, he asked me to read five pages each day and call him. And by the time we finished that, he knew everything about me. The most shameful things uh, with regards to my compulsive overeating and my interactions with other people. So nothing after that was really that difficult. I didn't really have anything to hide. I do sometimes want to please him and give him good news and that sort of thing, um, which is another trap. But yeah, I don't think I've ever really been actively dishonest with him or admitted things. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah. So that's a great question because the work that I do, the way that they try to keep people that I work with in the studio and not have them leave is they have tons of sugary snacks all over the place all the time. Whenever it's craft service, whenever it's catered, it's always stuff I can't eat. Um, so it's around me 24-7. What I do is... Uh, leave the situation, go for a walk outside, and phone someone else in the program. I'm lucky to have people that are in OA that are in the same circumstances uh, that I'm in and that I can text and see if they're around and call. So the phone list is the most important tool because, you know, prayer and, and those sorts of things, when I get into that state where I'm anxious and frustrated and maybe haven't had enough sleep or I'm in fear, I can't really slow my mind down enough to get the benefits of prayer. Not yet, anyway. But I feel like talking to another person and just having someone out there listen to me that's another compulsive overeater helps me in two ways. It lets the steam off the situation. I can go back to it with a different mindset. But it also holds me accountable because I know they're going to ask me next time they see me, so how did that work out? And I don't want to tell them I ate 12 banana nut muffins, you know? So um, that's a good question. Thank you. How has my relationship with my wife changed and evolved? It's a lot deeper. Uh, there was a big part of my life I was keeping away from her. We, uh, we've been together for about 10 years and we've been married for uh, four years. I started the program just around the same time we decided to move in together and, and live together. And I don't think I could have done it the way that I was behaving before because frankly, a lot of times we'd spend weekends together. I couldn't wait for her to leave so that I could overeat. And I would lie to her, you know, she would bring food there and I would eat it all and then run to the market to replace it. There was all this stuff going on and she knew. And so, like most people, once there's an indication you're not being honest with me, I wonder what other areas you're not being honest with me and it's really hard to have any trust. So it's really deepened our relationship. Um, we had, you know, as part of the ceremony, we had to... Uh, eat the cake, eat the wedding cake, and flour and sugar are not on my... And one of my, you know, uh, close friends, the guy who introduced me to this program was with me, and he said, you're not going to eat that cake, are you? You'll break your abstinence. And I was only a few months abstinent at this time. And uh, it was a big moment. Everyone's looking at you. It's part of the ceremony. I'm like, I'm not going to eat sugar and flour, but this is sugar and flour, and I'm supposed to. And I just 
lifted it to my mouth and set it down and didn't eat it, kept my abstinence and no one noticed and no one cared. But she loved that so much. She was so happy about that. And I was, my biggest concern was she would think that I was, this program was stealing an important moment from us. And she, the opposite happened. So a lot of times with my wife, um, where I think I might get in trouble by being honest, it actually brings us closer together. It's just my instinct to not tell you something because I want to present a version of myself that, that I think is better. And if I'm just myself, it usually works out okay. I, I go through the steps constantly. I'll take, uh, right now I'm finishing step 11. Um, I'll take a little break, but I go through the written steps and share each step with my sponsor, one after the other. Um, you know, I just keep cycling through them. And it helps me because when I'm doing the work, especially in step four or step eight, I, my temptation is to try and do it perfectly and get it right so it'll solve everything forever. And really what that is is laziness. I just want to get it done once and never have to look at that stuff again. Um, So it's helpful for me to remind myself that I'm going to do it again next year. So if I don't get everything absolutely perfect, it's okay. I'm going to have another chance. It's a way of life. It's not a 30-day crash diet program or something I'm going to go off and do in a treatment center and then come back and everything's going to be okay. It's my way of life. So I just spend... 15 minutes a week writing and I read each day and that seems to work out to get through the calendar year with one set of steps per year. No. I've used the uh, book that we have twice. As I mentioned, I use the 12 and 12 reading five pages at a time. If I read the same literature every day or use the same method every day, I check out mentally. I can't read page 86 every morning for 10 years. It's after about three months, I'm not reading it anymore. I'm thinking about what shoes I'm going to wear that day or who I'm going to see or I just check out. So I have to constantly change it. It's one of the reasons I come to meetings. I like to hear what you guys are doing and try that, you know. Thank you. Thank you. Diane. Could you talk about how your relationships with family and friends. Okay, so um, my relationships, how this program has affected my relationships with family and friends and how that ties in with my 10th step. As I mentioned, I heard uh, someone at a meeting years ago talk about this practice that he had where he would lie in bed at night as a step 10 and just imagine everyone he interacted with that day and what they would say about that interaction if they were asked. And that's a good place to start and see if I've caused any harm or, or there's any work that I need to do or anything that I need to ask for help with. How that is translated into family and uh, friends, you know, most of my really close friends are in program and it isn't, I'm not like the social guy at meetings or anything like that. I just feel like there's a certain level of intimacy and trust that I have with other people that are in this way of life. Um, There are a couple exceptions to that but uh, most of my really close friends are in the program so I can make an amends or talk about things that I'm struggling with with them and and it isn't a big deal Um, when it gets to my family um, it's a little more complicated most of my family are alcoholics and and have have problems with uh, overeating and uh, they're not you know for example my mother who's in her 70s just uh, emailed me yesterday because she got kicked out of her third rehab uh, for alcoholism and last year I was uh, 
had an opportunity to go work on a show in Toronto where I grew up. And I thought, this will be great. I'm going to go back and see my family, and we'll have Sunday dinner together. And I was there for four months working on the show, and I made plans to see them a dozen times, and twice it actually worked out. And the two times it worked out, one time it ended up a huge shouting match. So it's it's very complicated with family, but what I can say is my side of the street is completely clean. I acknowledge their birthdays. I stay in regular contact with them. They know where I am. They've confided things in me that they probably wouldn't when I was the person that I was before. And um, I've gone from being the worst of the worst and the black sheep of, of, of a pretty screwed up family to someone that's like an example of how things, you know, I'm pointed to as an example. Well, why can't you do what Dane does? Or why don't you, do you see what Dane's done? You know, which is remarkable and a huge uh, example of what this program has done for me. It's, um, you know, the family thing is painful, but I have to um, realize two things. You don't choose your family. You're born into them. Those relationships are, are there. And also they're in pain and, and trying to get through this life like everyone else is. And these things that they're using and behaviors they're engaged in are, are still working for them. And maybe I was a little more sensitive and they stopped working for me sooner and I was forced into this program. I really try and avoid the temptation of feeling like I'm above them or I've evolved beyond them. I'm, I am them. I've just found a different solution. And I really think it's because it just stopped, the other stuff stopped working. Thank you. The John behind this John. <laughs> At what point does my higher power come into my life at work, and especially when I have a crisis? So probably the first time that I felt any kind of evidence of a, of a power greater than myself or, or some kind of spiritual intelligence that underlying everything is when I did my first step five and uh, you know how I felt about meetings and the fellowship after that. My first step five in OA um, is when I really started to feel the presence of a higher power. And so my discipline is to try and connect with that every morning so that when I get jammed up at work or in the day and start to get frustrated, I have this quiet island that I can return to. I can remember how I felt in the morning when I was acknowledging what my higher power did for me. But in order to access any of that, as I was saying earlier, I need to phone someone else in the program and, and just let off some steam first because um, there's a reading somewhere in the program, and I, I forget where it is, but it talks about the channel of God being clouded and jammed up with anger and frustration. And, you know, I feel like when I'm in that state, it's already kind of too late to pray. I need to talk to another person that's in the program and, and you know, allow my mind to settle a bit, and then I can pray and ask for help. Does that answer your question? Okay, you're welcome. So I have, I, am I self-employed? Do I have financial insecurity? And how do I work the program? It's, it's yes to the first two, absolutely. It's, it's one of the biggest um, triggers of all of my defects is my uh, insecurity. You know, I had a, an opportunity to work as an employee for the first time in my life two years ago at a big entertainment company at a prestigious position and I realized about 30 days in I can't do this I, I'm just not I can't be someone 
that is beholden to your decisions and you, I, I need to be at the front of things and decide my own fate or I'm unhappy. Uh, so I, I finished the projects I was at there, but I learned a lot about myself um, and that I really am the kind of person that's better off as an entrepreneur and self-employed. The problem is the fear. And the way the fear manifests itself is a lot of times I'll take on more work than I can really do and then get completely stressed out. Or in times when the phone stops ringing, I think it's going to stop ringing forever. And one of the things that's really helped me is staying in close contact with other people that are abstinent in this program that are in the same state. And then also watching examples in my family. You know, my wife's family is very conservative and a lot of doctors and lawyers in the family and a lot of people that follow the, you know, the right path in society and, and you know, are achieving the results. And I look at uh, the things that they struggle with. You know, my brother-in-law is a doctor at Cedars-Sinai and so is his wife. And my other brother-in-law is a big attorney in uh, Brentwood. And they're afraid of the same things that I am. Even though they have the degrees and the security and all the outward appearances of success, they're just as afraid as I am of the financial insecurity. They're just not going to compulsively overeat and push everyone away because of it. So once I... Uh, once I can acknowledge that and realize that everybody has these fears and it's really the way that I cope with them that's the problem, I can focus on the solution. But you really hit on something. My fear of financial insecurity uh, is the biggest trigger of my defects. It's gotten a lot less severe as time has gone by because I have less secrets. I'm more honest in my business dealings because of the program. I don't I turn away work when I, when I can't effectively take it on and as a result I've gotten a better reputation and I've had more stability. But I don't think any one of us has complete financial security um, in this world. So it's, it's severity is less and less. But it is the number one offender for me. More than resentments is that fear that, oh my God, you know, I wake up sometimes at 4.30 in the morning before the alarm goes off and start worrying about that stuff and I just know I'm going to have a tough time and it isn't anything I wish I could point to something that triggers it but it's happened in every possible scenario so it's just my mind it's just my mind likes to find ways to torture me and this program you know has taught me to turn around and look at it and the minute I do as I said earlier it just scurries back into the corner as soon as I can say oh that's just that's just my mind that's just my negative thinking as soon as I can acknowledge that when I get into trouble is when I wake up and have that thought that my mind is produced and then believe it's real and start acting on it. Then it gets worse. Then I actually start to manifest some financial insecurity because I'm acting like someone that is living in that reality. And it's all just created in my brain. Anyone else? Can I say, Thank you. There was another question? That's a great question. So when I started, um, my abstinence and my food plan were, and I actually, I keep it on my phone, so just to keep myself honest here, I'm going to read it before I answer this question. Um, and I have, you know, a quote from the big book about fear at the top of my list. So the first thing, and the, my action plan hasn't changed. No lies. Okay, I was the kind of person, if you showed up at my apartment and said, let's go get dinner, I'd say, that's great, I'm starving, even though I've just eaten. You know, I, I was dishonest about food on every level with everyone all my life, as far as I can remember. And that was the hardest one 
to maintain. But I looked at it, you know, if I lie about it, I have to start my abstinence over and I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to tell the truth. There were a lot of awkward moments being honest with people about what I was eating and what I was doing. You know, you phone me and I'm eating. My instinct is to say I'm not eating. I don't know why. I'm eating an abstinent, healthy meal. People eat. But it felt like this dark secret that I could never let anyone know. Um, chew slowly. I, you know, wolf food down and just inhale it, and that's really unhealthy. Eat when I'm hungry. In other words, and that's where writing the food down really helps. Um, am I really hungry right now? Is that why I'm going for this food, or am I just stressed out? And I'm looking for the relief of, of like numbing myself with food. Um, write all of my food down. Three meals and one snack. Uh, right now, my plan of eating is no sugar, and what that means is no sugar in the top five. And I know that I've broken that a couple of times over four years. I remember actually sitting with a sponsee doing OA work and eating this Starbucks oatmeal with them. And then for some reason, I looked at the packet of ingredients that you dump in it and there was sugar in the top five ingredients and I panicked. I only had about four months and I phoned my sponsor and I was like, I relapsed. And he just asked me, did you intentionally eat sugar? And I said, no. He said, well, just don't do it again. And that was it. And, you know, he allowed me to maintain my abstinence. So... Um, that was one of the, the early ones. Um, and then writing everything down, three meals and two snacks. So what it's turned into now is three meals and one snack and about... So on uh, Passover last year, you know, we don't eat flour and I didn't do it for a week and I thought, I'm just going to keep this going. It wasn't any kind of like, you know, I'm just going to keep going with this no flour thing and see where it goes. And I told my sponsor, and he was actually not that supportive. He said, you know, you shouldn't... His thing is like, you don't want to make your plan of eating so restrictive that you're going to lose your abstinence and yo-yo all over the place. And you also, and I agree with him on this, and, you know, I know people that don't, but I don't want to be someone that goes to a restaurant with friends and pulls out a set of scales and drives the waiter crazy and has all of these crazy food rules. And I like to be pretty anonymous about my... People know I don't eat sugar and flour, but, you know, I don't make a big deal about it. And so the no flour thing he was concerned would be a problem, but I, I tried it and I've been able to maintain it. So I was hoping, because I weigh about 208 pounds, that it would get me under 200 pounds, because I had this mental goal that if I get under 200 pounds, life will be perfect. And it made no difference at all in my weight, none. It made no difference. But I'm doing it and it's been you know several months now, so I've just kept it on there. He said, you know, put it on sort of an orange list for 30 days, see if it works. And if it's not a problem, keep it going. So I did. It's one of the first things he asked me when, when I call him on Sunday nights is how that's going and whether that's still on there. So that's it. It's pretty simple, portable, easy to work with, and, uh, and that's what works for me. Michael. Okay, I'll read that, and then I'm going to wrap up because I realize I went a minute over. So the quote on, in the big book, Avoid fear as you would a plague. Fear, even the smallest fear, is a hacking at the cords of faith that bind you to God. Avoid depression, which is allied with fear. Remember that all fear is disloyalty to God. It's a denial of his care and protection. Sponsor sent me that, and I put it in there right away. Um, thank you. Now it's time for the secretary's announcements. <laughs>